Good morning. Uh, good, to, good to be here this morning. My name is Andy, one of the pastors here at New City Church. Always good to be able to, to open God's Word with you and, uh, and, and, and preach and teach God's Word. And so, again, what a privilege. I'd like, to, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, once again, we come before you this morning, and thank you for worship. Thank you, Father, for, for songs of joy and, and blessing that we can sing, that we can lift up to you sacrifices of praise. We just thank you for the opportunity, as said, to just to worship you, to honor you, to give glory to you. We thank you that we can open your word too. And once again, Father, we pray that your spirit will truly open our, our ears, our eyes to your word, to, to hear what your spirit, what you would want to say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Four weeks ago, Ryan began this uh, sermon series on 1 Peter, and he entitled, he entitled it um, Exiles for the City. And ever since that day, that word exiles has, has really stuck, struck a nerve with me. Uh, it's it stretching me a bit. Do I consider myself an exile in this country? Do I consider myself an exile in this country, uh, an exile is an outsider, an outsider. Some would translate this word exiles as, as temporary residents or immigrants or refugees. One pastor translates the word, this word exiles with this. This world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. Do we consider ourselves exiles in this country. You know, I think of myself, you know, I'm a citizen, I vote, I bought a house, I pay my taxes, um, I'm a a Medicare man now. (laughs) And so, you know, I I, I, I hear, I, I love to shop and eat in Kansas City. I mean, I see myself as belonging to the city. I like the city. Am I, make, am I making myself too cozy in the city, in this world? And I just want to say, I appreciate Ryan using this word, because for the last number of weeks, I am thinking that through. I'm pondering that. It's stretching me again. It's something I'm going to keep wrestling with, and I encourage you to wrestle with that as well. The Apostle Peter calls Christians in the first century here exiles. They were outsiders in their culture and society. One writer writes, because of their Christian faith, they were being marginalized by their society, alienated in their relationships, and threatened with, if not experiencing, a loss of honor and social economic standing and possibly worse. And so here's the question, here's the question. How do Christians live in a society or culture where they find themselves sidelined in the minority? How do we live if we are marginalized in our culture? How do we live if we are ostracized for what we believe by the larger community that we live in. That's the audience. That's the setting in 1 Peter. And I find it rather interesting that there's a correlation for us here today, the church in America. Again, the question, how do Christians live in a society or a culture where they find themselves 
a minority. The, the key verse today that I would like, and there, there's a lot here, and uh, I, I need to confess, it was a challenge to know where to dive and what to say about every verse and all these uh, verses that I read for you. The key verse, though, the main text is 3 verse 9. What does Paul, Peter say? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Wow, bless. For this is your call. For this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Now the title for today is Exiles and the Blessings of, of, of Christian Suffering. Now, Christian suffering, suffering, I'll get to that in a moment in the message. We'll look at the word blessing or the bless. And that's what I would like to share with you, this thought. We're called to be a blessing. We're called to be a blessing. If we find ourselves a minority in the culture, we're called to be a blessing. How? A number of thoughts with you. How? Involuntary submission to others. We willingly submit to others. We willingly submit to others. The word submit means to yield, to yield to others. Not a very popular word today in our culture. It does not imply inferiority. It does not imply weakness. It's a strength. In the Bible, submission is a strength. Remarkable. When we submit to others, we're intentional, we're deliberate. We do not, well, we should not, we should not submit grudgingly or reluctantly or unwillingly or half-heartedly. We know what we are doing. We submit with a purpose, with a purpose, and that's key. We can think of Jesus here, what Paul writes in in Philippians 2, verse 5. We read, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death, even death on the cross. Was Jesus inferior? Was Jesus weak? No, not at all. We think of the Trinity. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, he was willing, willingly, deliberately, he was willing to leave the honor and the glory of heaven and take a place with us. He deliberately submitted himself for a purpose, and that was the redemption, our redemption. And so biblical submission, biblical submission is not a condition, not a condition of weakness or uh, inadequacy. We willingly submit to others for their good or for the greater good. We willingly submit to others for their good and for the greater good. Our submission, our good deeds, our character should point people to Christ. And I I know Ryan touched on some of this too. Yes, last week, yesterday, last week. Submission submission is not worship. I mean, we, we are to fear God, worship him alone. We worship God, but we can submit, we can honor, we can respect People. Why? Because they're created in God's image. And why? God has placed them in certain positions around us. 
and we're to honor and respect them, the place that God has placed them. And so we have this in this section. I touched on it before we read scripture. The key verse, I think, is found in verse 16. Ryan, again, touched on this last week. Live as people who are free, and then this little phrase, live as servants of God. That's really the thought here. Live as servants of God. Wherever you are, wherever you find your place, live as servants of God. We're to be in submission. We're to be servants in the different roles and positions we fill in life. Again, as citizens to civic leaders last week Sunday, as household servants to masters or employees to employers, verse 18, today's text. As husbands and wives in marriage next week, chapter 3, 1 through 7. And as all Christians to one another, chapter 3, verse 8 and following. We, we broke this section up a bit, as I mentioned, since the end of chapter 2 and 3 are very similar. In verse 18, we read that word, this phrase, servants, servants, be, it says, subject to your masters with all respect. Some translations have slaves, but it's very interesting that the word for slave is usually used in, in, in Greek. It's not used here. It's a different word. Some people would say it, it's, it's, it's more like a household servants. And in the first century, it's interesting that, that servants, household servants, were not just unqualified laborers, but often managers and, and overseers and tutors and, and also the skilled artisans. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they were mostly bought, owned, and they didn't have the general freedom that other citizens had. The Apostle Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, if you, to slaves, if you can gain, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of this opportunity. But notice what Peter says here, go on. He says that even if your masters are unjust, strong words, it's hard for us to comprehend this. Even if your masters are unjust, it's a gracious thing. He uses that little phrase twice in verses um, and 19 and 20. It's a gracious thing to endure sorrows. To endure sorrows and injustices. How so? He says how? Enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly shows the uniqueness of Christian service. It shows who we really belong to. Who we really belong to. It demonstrates, interesting enough, that we belong and have a higher calling. It demonstrates we belong to a greater master. I like what one commentary says here. If he, a servant, bears the evil patiently, he has broken the chain of bondage in the power of the Lord. He shows his confidence in God's justice. He need not avenge himself. He also shows that his service is not only forced but voluntary. His master cannot enslave him, for Christ's slave. I love that phrase. He cannot humiliate him. He cannot humiliate him, for he has humbled himself in willing subjection to Christ the Lord. Christian servants are free from the need of vindication. A Christian servant, first of all, first of all, Christ's child. 
And he serves him alone so he can be salt and light wherever he finds himself. And he can be salt and light to his earthly master. Even when treated unjustly, his behavior and words will be uh, reflect, hopefully, that he belongs to the Lord. Be gracious. He will radically be radically different in conduct. Again, hopefully. Hopefully, his earthly master will be able to ask him of the hope the reason of the hope that, that is within him, chapter 3, verse 15. And so Peter is saying, Christians serve with a purpose. There's a reason we submit, for a purpose. Servants serve with a purpose. Our service points people to Jesus. Some commentaries make the application here to employees and employers here in this section. We can think here of Paul's words in Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, so that you, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. You know, how powerful is that? Our work has dignity. Our work has dignity and meaning. We work in our, in our vocations. We work as rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord. How powerful. We work for the greater good, not just for the paycheck. We work for the greater good. We work with a purpose to please our Lord. And in so doing, interesting enough, We have the opportunity to be salt and light and point others to Jesus Christ. And so we're called to be a blessing when we find ourselves a minority in the culture. We're called to be willing and humble servants no matter where we find ourselves. Our conduct for Christ will be telling. It will be very, very different. Called to be a blessing. How to? By doing good to all. By doing good to all. It is really of interest to see how often Peter in 1 Peter uses those words, doing good. Do good, doing good, good behavior. occurs over and over and over in this passage. Chapter 2, verse 12, I read that verse earlier. Keep yourselves... um, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chapter 3, chapter three, verse 11. Interesting here, the Peter um, quotes Psalm 34, to be blessed, to be a blessing, to bless, to be a blessing, you receive a blessing. But in those words there, He says, let him, the person blessed, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Peter wants Christians, Peter wants Christians who are exiles, interesting, to be the best neighbor, neighbors a citizen would want. That's what he's saying in this text. He would want Christian people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the best neighbors a citizen would want. And this is very important. Very, very important. How will the unchurched in Peter's day consider the Christian gospel? How will the unchurched or never-churched in our day consider the gospel? 
What is Peter saying? He's saying it's through your behavior. It's through your kind deeds, your acts of kindness, especially in the way you endure suffering. You will be different. People will take notice, he's saying. What what is it about you, they will say. Now, I find that very important here. Behavior, what comes first? Behavior, good deeds, doing good attracts, attracts. Of course, words are important. Please don't take me out of context. It's God's word. Words are very important. But notice what Peter is saying here. And I like the sequence found in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Our behavior will encourage unbelievers to ask for the reason for the hope that is within us. That's exactly the sequence. What will spark the curiosity of our neighbors to ask us questions about Christianity? What's going to spark their curiosity? It's a radical love we have for people. It's a radical love how we treat people, how we talk to people, how we sacrifice for people. It's remarkable. In our hearts, Peter will say, 1 Peter 3.15, we honor Christ the Lord, meaning we are at peace with him and we stand secure in the Lord. Our identity is in him. He is our Lord and master. We're secure in him. And when people ask us for the reason, for the hope that is within us, we can speak freely. We can speak freely. And we do this with gentleness and respect, Peter says. We do it with gentleness and respect. Our apologetic, interesting, this, this verse, 3 verse 15, the word defense there, some translations have answer. That's where we have the word or we receive the word apologetics. That, that word that we use so often comes from this verse. But notice, our apologetic is always to be given with love, never in degrading terms. It's interesting. Radical behavior in conduct and lifestyle is very, very important. So here's the question. Here's the question. If no one is asking you about your faith in Christ, are you radical enough in your service, in your behavior, in your unconditional love for people? That's strong. Hit me like a two-by-four when I read it this past week. Again, if no one is asking you about your faith in Christ, again, are you radical enough in your love for people? Do people around you know that you are different? That you're different. Not that you're just an oddball or kind of strange. (laughs) Understand me there. But that you're different. You... There's something about your character and the way you treat people that's just different. It's powerful. It's powerful. So I think that's the radical demonstration here, that apologetic for the church. To the church, not just individual, but also as a church body, body life. Mercy, that's so important. What makes you people tick? What, what is it about you? Why are you doing this? Again, words are important, Words are very important, but deeds attract and will win the day. 
Matthew 5, I'm always amazed how Peter sounds so much like Jesus in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is heaven. It's remarkable. Your good works. Called to be a blessing. Called to be a blessing through good deeds, but also through Christian character. 3 verse 8, we read, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a, a humble mind. Again, it is truly remarkable how concerned Peter is about how Christians should live in their society. Their deeds and words and character are important. People are watching. We are signposts. We are signposts. Many, many ways, if you call yourself a Christian, you, you don't have an option whether you will be a witness for Jesus or not. You are a sound signpost. Who are you pointing to? What are you pointing to in your life, in your words, your, your conduct, and how you treat people? These virtues in verse 8, very interesting, are, are found many different places in Scripture. Second Peter 1, Peter writes these words, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. The Apostle Paul, Galatians 5, what does he say? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Character matters. Character matters. And, and, and how we live in community matters. Again, the world is watching. And so it's so powerful, I think, as community, as, as we demonstrate body life. In community, we forgive in community, we, we encourage, we bless, we sacrifice, we rejoice with those that rejoice, we weep with those that we weep. What a testimony. John chapter 13. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's powerful. Call to be a blessing. Bless. 3 verse 9. How and how we suffer for righteousness sake. How we suffer well for Christ. Really quite powerful here. Um, Chapter 2 verses 18 uh, through 20. Once again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then we can also just think of chapter 3, verse 14. 3, verse 14. We read, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
And then in verse 16, we read, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those revile your good behavior in Christ, um, they may be put to shame. Again, to suffer. The suffering here that Peter is referring to is not, is not a sickness or a natural calamity. It's very specific. We're suffering for being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. All because we say we follow Jesus as Lord, we are being persecuted or ridiculed or slandered. Now, just being a Christian, just because we are Christian, some people just will not like us. We can be good, and we can be people of character. We we can bless, but there's going to be some people, nevertheless, who will slander our name. We, we just think of, again, Christians, we can, we can attract people, but we can also repel people. And people with sinful hearts, out of envy or pride, they just will not like us. They oppose Christ, they oppose the cross, they oppose the gospel, they persecuted Christ, so we as a follower of Jesus Christ, they will persecute us as followers as well. But how do we respond? It's truly, we, we just don't hear this message enough in, in evangelical church in America. We bless. We bless. 3 verse 9. We respond with gentleness and respect. And then also just turn with me in chapter 5, really First Peter. Uh, every chapter refers to, to suffering for Christ. Uh, so one of the key words. First Peter 5 verse Uh, verses uh, 12 and following. Brothers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's warning them that persecutions will come. But rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Let, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Remarkable. We're, we're to bless and we're to rejoice. Now, I have to confess that this is counterintuitive to my own nature and my own disposition. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. When I'm wronged, I want to get even. Anybody with me there? I want to get even. I have my rights. I want my rights. I want to retaliate. I want to do vengeance. My sinful nature, my flesh comes to the top, and it's not pretty. You could just ask my wife. And I'm not proud of that. It's remarkable how I want to get even. That, that, that spirit comes in so, so Quickly, Jesus says, we're to bless. We're to bless when we're insulted. To bless. Jesus says, this is our calling twice in our passages here. Chapter 2, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 9. For to this you were called. <laughs> called to bless. Called to suffer. That's interesting, a calling. We've been called to suffer as Christian people called to suffer, but then also to suffer with grace. 
to suffer well for Christ. In our suffering, we're pointing to Christ. Well, how's that going for you? How's that going for you at work? How's that going for you when, with your neighbors? How's that going for you with, you know, schoolmates? How's that going for family members, some of them? Are you a blessing? Do you bless? Again, Matthew 5. Again, the words here of Jesus. Again, so, so much, so common. First Peter in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake, for those is the kingdom of heaven, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so, to recap, we're called to be a blessing by submitting ourselves willingly to others. And we do so with a purpose. There's a purpose behind our submission. We're called to be a blessing through our good deeds. Our neighbors and our co-workers will just love to have us be neighbors or be with them on the team at work. We're, we're called, we're called to, to be a blessing through our spirit-filled character, and we're called to be a blessing by how we suffer for Christ, how we suffer well for Christ, we bless. But what's our motivation? I touched on this a number of times already, but what's our motivation? Why suffer with grace? Peter says in second, chapter 2, chapter 3, it's the example of Christ. And I turn again to chapter 2. Notice what he says. Beautiful words. Verse 21 and following. He says this. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then we have this beautiful, beautiful thought here. Sounds very much like Isaiah 53. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and turn and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And he does the same thing in chapter 3. He talks about how we should live as suffering servants. And then we have the example of Christ, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then here we have, some say, the most difficult verses in Scripture in the New Testament to understand, to interpret it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits in prison? Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been
being subjected to him. As I mentioned, some people find that this section here, again, some words, the most difficult verses to interpret and understand in the New Testament. And so it's very important for us to remain humble here. It's, it's a great principle here of interpretation and hermeneutic. The Bible is very clear. Oh, 90%, 98%, 99% is very, very clear. But there are words or phrases and some uh, verses that, that are confusing. And we just then need to be very humble how we land on that verse or that phrase. Here's my take. I lean toward this interpretation. It says, I think it says that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he preached to those in prison, to the spirits in prison, even to those in Noah's day. Prison here means the place of death, of hell itself. And there he preached a message of victory, of victory on the cross, we think the one perfect sacrifice for sin was made. It is finished. He won. He won. And so he descended into the place of death and declared victory. He won the day. He won the day. And so now, just let's go back to the example of Jesus. So much for that. I'll let you uh, think that through the rest of that. We serve and suffer for righteousness' sake. Because we belong to Jesus, the suffering servant. Because we belong to Jesus, the resurrected Lord. This gives us hope. This is, I think, what, what Peter's after. This gives us hope when we're suffering. We see what Jesus did for us, but we also see that he conquered death and hell, rose victoriously, uh, and he's living in heaven today. And that's our destination. I really like what the NIV Study Bible says here uh, on, on this section. In this section, Christ is a supreme example of our suffering evil for good, of suffering evil for good. His experience as the suffering servant Savior transforms the suffering of his followers from misery into privilege. Again, that last sentence. His experience as the suffering servant, Savior, transforms the suffering of his followers from misery into privilege. I'm going to to tie together just a couple of verses in chapter 2 and 3 as we now uh, look at the Lord's Supper. We're coming toward the end here, which we will celebrate here in a few moments. Here's the gospel message, 2 verse 24. 2 verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then chapter 3, verse 18, gospel so clearly presented in these words. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why do we celebrate New City Church, the Lord's Supper, every Sunday? Because it points us always to Jesus, the one who died, but the one who rose victoriously from the grave. The righteous one, Jesus, died for the unrighteous ones. That's us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, guilty under condemnation and hellbound, but God... 
in love, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, our plight, unable to save ourselves, again in sin, under condemnation, but God came to the rescue to us. God, the righteous one for the unrighteous. He came to us to bring grace and to bring us to the Father. To bring us to the Father. So in Jesus, his death and resurrection, we have forgiveness and victory. It's why we can rejoice and be glad, even in suffering for righteousness. We know who we belong to, and we know how it ends. We know how it ends. New City Church, we're blessed because Jesus died for us, died for our sins and brought us to the Father Allow, allow him to transform your suffering from misery to privilege. Be a blessing. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we confess that here in North America, here in Kansas City, we don't really suffer physically or even bodily for you not like other brothers and sisters around the world, which we will look at next week, touch on. But Father, um, it is a good reminder for us as we live in this country now, we find ourselves a minority, marginalized. How will we live? Will we scream? Will we revolt? Will we hide? Or will we, in your name and with your spirit, live out the Christian faith right where you put us? And in that place, be different for you. Oh, Spirit of the living God, we pray that you will transform us. That you will transform us, how we live, how we work. Lord, we, we think of most of us here, many of them work Mondays through Fridays and more at the workplace. How do we, how are we light and salt for you in this place? We're a signpost for you. What are we pointing to? What do people see? And dear Father, if people throw insults at us, probably at times we might be mocked, made fun of, I think that's happened to many of us. How do we respond? Oh, Lord, help us to bless. Help us in those moments to be different, to be like you. Help us, Lord, to to be gracious, to be gentle in our response, to be respectful in our response. Oh, dear Lord, we have to think in America, how do we re-evangelize this country? All we hear about is how the church is losing members and how, how we're losing the battle. I don't always think so. But at times it does appear that way. So how will we live in this country? How will we truly be reflectors for you? Again, wherever you place us. So, Lord, thank you for Peter. Thank you for this letter. 
in the New Testament. Thank you that we can be exiles for the city, for a purpose. We're exiles and strangers in this land for a purpose, to give you glory and honor in all that we say, all that we do. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. We, uh, we have the honor now of uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and I said much about that already, but uh, again, to think as we come forward <laughs> how precious Jesus is, the center of our faith, Christianity, Christ. The center of our faith is Christ who died for us, bore our sin in his body on the tree for the complete remission of all our sins. And so when you come forward, please come forward just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for what you did for me, for what you did for me. And may my life today and as I leave this place be a blessing for you. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper at this time. We form two lines. There's some gluten-free bread in the center. We'll celebrate it this time.